Hello, everybody. Welcome once again as we continue on in the study we're doing of the New Testament. Um, we're working through the New Testament basically a chapter at a time. We're about two and a half years in uh, to our study. Seems like a long time. We're about halfway through. I think we'll be done in another two and a half years with the New Testament. And then, as I said, we'll move right into the Old Testament. That'll take us 15 years. And so uh, in 17 and a half years from now, we'll be done having gone through it once. Way to go. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, we'll still be having pasta. <laughs> and when you find something that works, stick it. So uh, we did the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, and then we did the book of Acts. Um, and actually, we, we changed them a little bit in order because we, we went in to do Luke and Acts together. So we did. So we did John before we did Luke. And now, as we come out of Acts, rather than hop right into Romans, um, which will be the next book that's in, in order in the Scripture, we're, I, I decided it would be um, interesting to work through the letters that Paul wrote uh, in the order we believe that he wrote them, because we can tie them right back into the journeys, his missionary journeys that we just studied, and hopefully it all stays in context with you. First uh, Thessalonians was written, we believe, around 51 A.D., um, and we believe that he was in uh, Thessalonica around 49 A.D. on his second missionary journey. And we, we looked in Acts 17, we saw the problems that he had there, and he kept getting run out of town around that time, but... Uh, but he did get to spend, oh, about six months with the, Thess with the Thessalonians. That's hard to say repeatedly. And uh, then he had to leave rather abruptly. And so we know he was writing back to, uh, to uh, talk about the report that he'd just gotten back um, from Timothy. Because they couldn't wait to find out what happened. And they sent Timothy to him. And Timothy came come back and said things were really going good with the church. But it was a really young church, and, and, uh, and even though they were doing well, they had a lot of things they needed to grow up into. Uh, and so Paul is trying to add to that in some of these letters, and he's addressing some um, basically sort of maturing things that needed to take place and some things they needed to be aware of uh, as, as it relates to Christ and his return. And, um, and that's what we've been talking about. We've done the first four chapters of Thessalonians already. We're in the fifth chapter today. Um, we, we sort of, in the end of chapter 4, we're talking uh, about a subject that is, is known as the rapture of the church. Um, and I, I told you last week that that word actually doesn't occur in the Bible. Rapture, what occurs in there is, is, is um, being caught up together with him. And that's where that term came from. So the idea is certainly there, just not the word. And that um, uh, the church has uh, different ideas about when that event takes place. Um, based around a seven-year period of time known as a tribulation, and that some people believe it happens for the church before the tribulation starts. Some people have, believe it happens halfway through, three and a half years in, and other people believe that the church is here through all the seven years of tribulation, and we go out at the end of it. Now, some people believe it's already all happened. Um, so there, so there's, a, there's a wide variety of beliefs out there. And I cleared it up last week by telling you that what I believe is that you get to go out wherever you believe. So, that would change a lot of viewpoints, though. <laughs> I get whenever I believe, then I believe it's pre-trib. Thank you very much. 
There's, there's really good scripture for all three points. Um, I think when you um, look at the feasts of Israel, the seven feasts, my opinion, it probably points more closely to a pre-trib thing. However, I've listened to people that I really respect talk about mid-trib and post-trib and, and uh, it can actually say, yeah, that makes sense to me as well. So, you know, wherever you're at with that is fine. I don't, I don't think it's one of the main things. Um, and that's what I always get to with that. That's why we can love everybody with different opinions. As long as they love Jesus, you know, that's the main thing, right? Um, the other stuff, not so much to me. It's interesting, but I don't want to lose a lot of time on it. I think you can get caught up in trying to figure that stuff out instead of going to tell people about Jesus, which is what we're here for. And guess what? We'll figure it out when he comes back. We'll know. And until then, it's best guess stuff. All right? So um, he's addressing that. Now, in, in chapter 5... He's going to bring up another pretty important topic called the Day of the Lord. And um, the, the Day of the Lord, scripturally, is, is known as the great and dreadful Day of the Lord. Um, and it's, it's pretty intense. And we'll look at a few Old Testament verses about it. But uh, for believers, we, we, can be, it, it's, we can be extremely encouraged because it, it means the Lord's coming back. And that's what it's really all about for us. And that... Because of uh, what happens when he comes back, it's, it's part of the reason we're to be busy doing what we're supposed to do, telling people about Jesus and, and this harvest season where they have an opportunity to come to him and, and to follow him and to find life in him forever. And that's good news. And for the, Thess uh, the Thessalonians, Paul's reminding them to be encouraged because ultimately Jesus is coming back for us and that's a really good thing. So let's... Uh, Let's hop into 1 Thessalonians 5, 28 verses, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. That would have been a perfect time for you to go into labor, you know. It would have been awesome, wouldn't it? Oh, well. I was kind of hoping, you know. It... But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day surprise you should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him." Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And blessed be the word of the Lord. Okay, so, um, as I started sort of in the intro, um, 1 Thessalonians 5, the first four verses, talks about what's called in Scripture the day of the Lord. And when Jesus comes back at the second coming, a new period of his story begins. God will be at work in world affairs more directly and dramatically than he has been since the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. And it's a time that's referred to by many of the Old Testament prophets, and um, it has fascinating um, con- descriptions of, of really cool stuff and really not so cool stuff depending on where you're at in the Lord. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. But Joel says... In Joel 2, 28-32. And afterward, I will pour out all my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That's a pretty good one. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. This is another tough one. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified city and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. So, um, these verses indicate um, that the day of the Lord includes both judgment and blessing. And that day begins, as I said, with the Lord's return, and it ends at the conclusion of the millennium. So um, there's a process, and this is a major theme 
of prophecy. Um, when, when, when prophetic people, back now a couple of thousand years, you know, when they were doing what they were talking about, several thousands of years, when they would look into um, the events that the Lord would show them, um, one thing that's very difficult for them to see prophetically is how far apart those events are separated. Because when you're, when you're looking at future events, it's hard to see time um, and how it unfolds. I, I don't know if I'm making sense, but, but they're looking in the future. So, in effect, what they're seeing, and they think that this thing is happening on a day, that's why it's called the Day of the Lord, um, we believe as we break it apart, that it's actually a thousand years, the millennium. And it, all this stuff is going on in that period of time, which is, is um, something that we believe happens, that the Lord comes back and he sets up some sort of um, perfect government here that runs for about a thousand years, and people ultimately reject that as well, um, which is crazy. And then uh, there's a lot of different theories about that, but it, this millennium reign takes place. And that this, this encompasses this day of the Lord, which looked like a day to the people... 3,000 years ago, but which going, when you look at it, they couldn't tell where those events were taking place. Um, we look at this stuff, and we spent a great deal of time talking about this when we did our teachings on the kingdom of God um, in the past. Now, they're all up on the website, but that was several years ago in preparation for the study in the Bible. And um, the kingdom of God, uh, as, we, as we talk about it... Um, we live in the kingdom and we live in a tension of the now and the not yet because Jesus has come and he's coming back. And he inaugurated the kingdom when he came and he's going to fulfill it when he comes back. And so we're living in that tension. And so we believe that the promises, all the promises that, that take place when he comes back, um, that we're in faith to ask for now and some of them break through. That's why we're able to do the things that, that he's called us to do, to go and pray and do those things. It's always on him, because what we're in effect asking for when we pray for him to move now is for all the promises of the kingdom coming. Um, so the kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. And we look at the Bible throughout with that understanding that from the time that Jesus has come the first time till he comes back, we're in this tension of the now and the not yet. And then when he does come back at the second coming, it kicks off this thousand-year Rain. So where he comes back, pre, post, or mid-trib, I don't know. But then it, whatever that looks like, it kicks off this thousand-year reign, the millennium. And uh, um, all of that's covered in Revelation 6 through 21. But it's, like I said, there's so many different ideas of what that looks like that it's, it's a little mind-boggling. But we'll get to Revelation apparently here eventually, won't we? Because it's, oh, I forgot I have to do that book again. I did a year on Revelation some time ago. All right, we'll get back to it. Um, but there's one, my favorite kingdom of God verse is this, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 26. Write it down and go and look at it sometime. But it sort of gives a chronology of these things happening very clearly, Paul does. Um, and, and since he was talking about the end times, this is how it fits together. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. This is how it happens. Christ the first fruits. It starts with him. Okay? Then, that's the death and resurrection. That's the first fruits. We understand that about the feast and everything we've studied that. Then, when he comes, when he comes back, those who belong to him get caught up to him. That's what we've been reading about. Then, the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, so when you read that verse, if you go and look at it, so it starts with the first fruits, that's Christ, when he, when he came the first time and went to the cross, died, resurrected, and ascended. When he returns, the church gets caught up to him at whatever point that is. The believers, we, we're, we're with him. And then this thousand year period starts in which he deals with all this other stuff and then at the end of that, because God somehow in his fairness is giving everybody opportunities to repent over and over and over again. Um, but but uh, somehow in that thousand year, at the end of it, the enemy gets another shot at people that want to chase after him again. So I don't know how that deception works, but it happens. But But you won't, as believers, you don't have to worry about any of that. And ultimately, that's what he's telling the Thessalonians. Because you're believers in Christ, you, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. That's just what's going to happen. But it should be sort of motivation to tell people that they need to know Jesus. That's, that's what we're here for. And that, that he's, the, he's the one that all those good verses are about, what he's done at the cross, that people can be reconciled to God and, instead of lost in their sin. Now, what takes place, he's saying, will, will surprise um, the world... Because they're going to be saying at that time, you know, everything's great and it's wonderful, peace and safety, everything's perfect. That's when it's going to happen, apparently. But the believers won't be um, surprised by it all. One reason they may not be surprised by it at all, because they may have been taken out in chapter 4. Right? That's really what that says. So if you, if I said you can however you want to go, but if you read it like that, they're not surprised because they already got raptured possible. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 5, then 5 through 10, says, he goes on and says this, since um, we have this hope in what Jesus has done in the cross, and because we have that, see, then we can trust in the fact that uh, what he said he's going to do, he's going to do when he comes back. And again, that ties into the Feast of Israel, and I've I've talked about that all, all the time. Four have been fulfilled, three yet to go. Jesus fulfilled the first four of the seven perfectly, and we're right where we're supposed to be. We're in the summer of harvest, and we're waiting for the next one, which is trumpets. And, and uh, I'll be talking about that again this weekend um, uh, as we talk about John 14. And we're just waiting for trumpet blast. And then the harvest is over, and at the end of the trumpet, all the worshipers of God leave the harvest field and go, go to him. And the ones that don't, don't respond, that don't know him, they don't respond. Okay. So that's all tied in there. Probably some of it's going, oh, yeah. Um, so, But because we know that, because we know what he's done for us on the cross, and because we know since he's done that, he's coming back for us, what Paul's going on to say here is now we need to live in the world differently than everybody else. We need to live differently than the world does. We're to live in the light, not in the darkness. And um, this living has some practical applications. Um, we're, we're to be self-controlled. And I, I would define that as living by doing the next right thing. Probably never heard that before. I think that's what it means. Um, I'm joking because you've been here. You know I talk about that's how we do this thing. That's the only way I know how to describe this walk. You live by, by, tr- you, by trying to do the next right thing. And that, that's what you keep doing. And, and hopefully you'll do it. And then every now and again you'll mess up. And when you do, you go to God and ask for forgiveness, which he gives you. And then he empowers you by his spirit to go do the next right thing. That's the process. That's the only way I know how to describe this walk. But that, to me, means a living a self-controlled life. That you're making choices and that you keep making better choices. Hopefully, along the way, your, your choices are getting better. And, um, and, and so you're moving in that process. So we're to be self-controlled. And we're to be people, those verses said, of faith, love, and hope. That's what we're supposed to be. 
which is a great description. See, and we talk about that all the time. Those are, those are the people that make a difference in the world. People of faith, people of love, people of hope. Alright, so we're not supposed to be like the world, all caught up in the darkness and the fear and selfishness and all that mess. We're supposed to be people like that. And he described it as armor again going on. And that to live in this world, we've got to keep putting that armor on because the, the, the world will try and take you down. We're such a fear-based world now. The, the, the people are afraid of everything. Everything is driven by fear. Um, and it, it, it's amazing to me. Nobody, you know, it's like... A, um, our number one priority now is security. And I get it. But at the same time, that stops you from taking risks. And part of this life, it got some risks in it. I mean, to really live this life for God, there's a few risks you got to take. There's, sometimes you got to step out of your comfort zone. Do some stuff. So we have, we got to kind of balance all of that stuff somehow in, in the process. And so... To do that, we need to be people of faith, love, and hope. Now, verses 11 through 15, he goes on and he says, okay, here's some other stuff. Now, all these verses are really practical. We're to be encouraging. Huh, maybe we should start doing that. <laughs> Why don't we start doing that? How about every day you encourage at least two people? How about that? Oh, you, can we try that? That would be new. We're to be respectful. Oh, we talk about this stuff all the time. We're to, uh, respectful of other people. Um, treating them the way we want to be treated, regardless of how they treat us back. Uh, that's respect. Um, we're, we're to be respectful. We're to live in peace with each other to the best of our abilities. We're to be helpful. Patient. That's a big one. Those patient ones always make me stop. As I know, there's got to be some work done there. And kind. That's a pretty good list right there in 11 through 15. We could work on that one for a while. Encouraging, respectful, live in peace with each other, be helpful, patient, and kind. Okay, that would be enough, you would think, but no, it's not. He goes on from there. Verse 16 through 18. How about 16? We're to be joyful sometimes. No, that's not what it said. We're to be joyful always. Sometimes, doesn't it seem tough? Joyful always? I mean, that's a tough one. I, I, honestly, I think, you know, we, we'd be working at it. But remember, it's not, a, it's not an admonition to pretend that everything's great when it's not. There's something about joy, and we've discussed this, that um, is different than... Well, I think we come to believe it is um, um, that that to be full of joy uh, is about being settled in those promises that we just talked about and of what Jesus did and what he's going to do and that we can settle there so that no matter what we're going through, we can always ultimately find rest there. I don't think it's about being um, happy all the time. Because uh, I think they're different. I think there's a difference between joyful and happy. And I don't think culturally maybe we know how to separate the two. We think they're the same. Happiness is a wonderful thing, but it, it comes from the word happenstance. And, and um, it just is kind of like that. It sort of comes and goes because it's based on circumstance. Where joy is based not on circumstance, but on an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he's going to do. And that's why Paul's able to say what he's able to say there. 
Listen, because you've got the best deal in the universe, really, no matter what your circumstance, you can take some sort of peace and settledness in what he's going to do for you. And so that's, that's the admonition. Praying continually. We need to make sure that we stay connected in prayer. Um, I, I don't believe it means praying all the time, like, you know, 24 hours a day. I think it means that we're to be constantly checked in. You know, keep going back. That's my understanding. But if you can pray 24 hours a day, cool. But i got to sleep. Um, and I, I know that I stop praying sometimes because I'm doing other things. I mean, that's just the reality. But then I try and check back in as often as I can because that's a good thing. And, and I try and check in more than just at meals. Um, I mean, if that's all you got, don't let me stop you doing that. But, but check in as often as you can during the day. You know, when you think about it, check in. If, if, that would be a really good thing. And if you find that you're not doing that, set a timer or something to remind you to check in every couple of hours. So, and then just check in. Now, I don't even think it's got to be long. Just check in. Um, oh, I wasn't done. And giving thanks in all circumstances. Now, it's important. Um, it's It's... In all circumstances, not for all circumstances. You're not supposed to be thankful for the terrible stuff that happens. Um, but we're, we're, we're supposed to be thankful people in this life. And um, that sounds pretty good, too. Maybe we should start doing that. Let's start thinking about being thankful for five things every day while we're encouraging two people. What do you think? There we go. Hey, well, we're going to get right into this one. And we'll even make some wristbands. Oh, we got them in the back. Uh, and there's a website, encouraged2.com. Wow. Um, just because of... See, you, I've told you over... But being thankful, when you're thankful, when you think about what you're thankful for, it keeps you from spending your time being bitter or upset about what you don't have. And that's where people get lost. Um, be thankful for what you got, for what God's doing, for where you're at, for the promises, for the, what He's done on the cross and He's coming back for you. Those are the, that's again, best deal that you can get is already in place for you as a believer. The best, absolute best thing. Are there some stuff here we gotta deal with? Yeah, of course there is. It's a broken planet, it's a fallen world. There's some stuff we gotta deal with. It don't always go the way we want. But, but we can be thankful in, in our attitudes. We can be thankful for what God has done. Okay, be, be, be thankful for what's left, not what's lost. First Corinthians five nineteen through twenty two, um, we're to live in the Spirit. We're we're to be connected. We're we're to be yielded to the Holy Spirit in our lives, listening for Him, um, for direction and for guidance, and and uh, uh, you know just just being aware that He's in us and for us and with us. Um, we're not to treat prophecies with contempt, but you know, particularly the stuff that was coming at us and uh, that he already sort of inferred to the great and terrible dealer. Not not to treat anything prophetic with contempt, but to test it. That you're not just supposed to take it for granted either. You're, you know, if somebody says something that has some sort of prophetic anointing, you're supposed to test it. You're not just supposed to immediately grab it. Um, you test it, and then I like the advice: you hold on to what's good, and then don't hold on to the rest of it. You let it go. That's a pretty good idea um, and, and something that as believers we should carry into every situation. When you listen to anybody teaching from the Word or anything else, you're supposed to test all of it and hang on to the good stuff. And the stuff that wasn't so good, you just go, meh, 
Um, I, I often refer to that. It's like um, we had chicken back there today. And, and uh, most of you know how to eat a piece of fried chicken, right? You don't eat the bones, do you? You eat all the good stuff and you get rid of the bones. That's a good way to handle this stuff. Take it in. Test it. Take the good stuff. Get rid of the rest. Uh, and we're to avoid every kind of evil, says in there, which is just really good advice because that's where we get in trouble. Verses 23 and 24, we can trust in the Lord to help us with these things because the Word says He's faithful. And we know He's faithful. And so we can trust Him to help us with this life that He's called us to, this radical lifestyle that we talk about here, living by doing the next right thing, all those things. Can't do it with your own strength. But He's faithful to help you do it. And if you decide you'll do it, and that's how you want to live, He's going to help you to do it and to help you along the way. And then the last few um, verses, he's just signing out of the letter. He tells them to greet each other well, to make sure everybody hears in the church is what he's written, and he sends the grace of God along in his closing statement. And, uh, and that's First Thessalonians. And we'll start Second Thessalonians when we get back together next week. But that's all we're going to do for today. If you're watching by video, thanks for watching. God bless you. Is there anything we can do? You can call or write us, email us. We'll do whatever we can. Um, but we're going to close here tonight with prayer.